listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. I posted my 800th episode the other day. 800. And what's amazing about that is I had Andrew Ferris from In Excess. And he was a co-composer of all their songs. He was a founding member. And I saw In Excess in Philadelphia years ago. And I remember driving home. And I was wearing leather pants. It was the 80s. I'm not going to lie. And driving home, I wrapped my telephone. My Fierro, my Fierro, exactly, around a telephone pole. Anyway, we have a great show today. My guest, uh, such a great actor. He was on a little over six years ago, and since then, I've relocated back to New Jersey. He's not where he used to be. I think he lived on a vineyard when he was on my show last time. And my guest is Reed Diamond. How you doing, Reed? Oh, my God. It's so good to be here, buddy. There's so Just in that first one minute, there's so much to unpack. <laughs> first of all, if you're only as hip as your guest, I feel terrible. I feel there's a lot of pressure on me. Um, I, I wish I was more hip, and, and I'm going to try to be as hip and reflect as much hipness as possible. And then rubber pants. Leather. Rubber leather. Pants. Oh, my God. You know, it sounded like rubber. And I thought, oh, that's genius because you went to a concert and you need rubber pants in case you don't want to have to make your way to the restroom. You can have a couple of extra beers and you've got your rubber pants ready to go. Exactly. Now, yeah, exactly. now what happened? You were, on a, you were in a vineyard, I mean, which is great. And now Toronto's a great city. My roommate from college is it, it designs all the inside of the uh, a lot of the Asian restaurants in there. His name's Bennett Rowe. Right. And he, right. you know, he says Toronto is so hip. But what happened? How, how does this whole change? Well, dude, I mean, obviously, I got tired of drinking so much wine, uh, <laughs> which is really, on, on one level, it isn't in the top 20 reasons um, that I, let me, sorry, I didn't mean to get an email during that. I feel like the worst person ever. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't, uh, it's not the top reason that we moved here, but um, when you live in wine country and all of your friends make wine, and all of your friends have extraordinary cellars. Um, you tend to drink a lot of wine. And, uh, so we moved to Canada for the beer uh, because they're known for their beer. Uh, so we came up here for beer. No, it was uh, seven years in paradise. Um, we were in the Santa Ynez Valley, uh, Los Olivos, uh, the wine country outside of Santa Barbara, where the movie Sideways uh, was shot. Right, And it was great. Made lifelong friends. It was really, uh, it was a very simple reason we moved. My daughter had gotten to a certain age. My wife had grown up in Toronto. I grew up in New York City. And we just wanted to give her some urban uh, city life. And Toronto seemed like the right place to go. It was, um, it's, a, it's, one, it's the most uh, multicultural city in North America, possibly I've heard claimed in the world. So it's a great, vibrant city. I fell in love with my wife here. That's where we courted. And um, so every time I come back here, when I've, I've been here, because I've been here a few times for work since my, my wife and I first met 18 years ago. But I sort of do the stations of the cross of our romantic uh, 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 rendezvous spots, all of our favorite restaurants. And many of them are still here. But um, we wanted to give our daughter a little city life. And because uh, she'd basically been a country girl. We'd lived on a ranch uh, surrounded by vineyards and uh, and I wanted her to get a little a little of that grit we um, we wanted her to be a little more streetwise and but I, I didn't want to go back to Manhattan uh, just because it just seemed too overwhelming so uh, uh, and in Canada everyone's as they say 15% nicer so uh, it's just it's it's the New York City but 15% uh, nicer well it must be great for you because you are an accomplished yeah. actor that you Maybe. don't have to live in LA anymore I mean, there's something that, you know, with everyone doing with taped auditions, how, right. you know, I, how has that changed for you? And do you like the in-person audition or the taped audition? And I'm sure you get a ton of offers, but what do you find better? It's a, it's a, it's a, that's a very prescient question at the moment because I just, before I got on the, on the Zoom with you, I, uh, I just put a, uh, an audition on tape. Um, now, it's interesting because uh, we live in very interesting and strange times. So things have already changed so much, right, with how the business was working because things were, everything was going to self-tape and you could live pretty much anywhere. And that, I think that, that also influenced some of our, I mean, that was the reason we moved initially up to wine country is I go, as long as I'm close to an airport, I can kind of live anywhere I want. I want my family to be happy. And yeah, there, were, there certainly I was lucky enough to get offers, but then you know you have to audition, and, and uh, the self tape thing is uh, it's a it's an interesting monster because uh, you know, when you go into the room, 
And you're really only going to do it once or twice. You get to meet the people and you get the vibe off the people. I mean, certainly if you ask me which I prefer, I certainly prefer going into a room because it's a great way to sort of sniff each other out in some sort of, you know, primitive, feral way where you know you know, if you want to work with each other, you can also interact. And if they want to see something differently or you, you want to try something different, um, the room is great. But uh, the only the only thing – but it's self-taping is, is interesting. Um, I think the only problem is if you have any sort of uh, perfectionism in you, uh, the, you, can, you can lose your mind. Because uh, as I said, I, I, I tweeted this. I posted uh, – I go, you know, auditioning is we want you to paint a room – um, several weeks from now, so we'd like you to prove that you can do it by painting an entire house tomorrow at noon, nice. right? And so, it's, auditioning is a very strange process because there's no other. It's it has it's not commensurate to um, anything you're really going to do on set in a certain way. And in fact, I was thinking about the other day. I was thinking about people who say, "Oh, I love auditioning." Fuck you. I, you know, if you love, you're, you're the guy who said, hey, I'm sorry, you know, the bell rung at three, you go, you didn't sign any homework. I love auditioning. No one loves auditioning. You know, who, who wants to be, you know, uh, you, you know, you want to, it's, you, who wants to be judged? But, um, but, you know, doing it home, you have a little more control, but I always find the odd thing, and this is very inside baseball, but the thing that I always find odd about auditioning is, if I'm on set and you and I are shooting a scene, we're going to do it a couple of times. It's going to be cut. So if on take three, the way this moment happened was really fascinating, we'll cut that one in. Then we'll cut in the beginning from take two. Never, almost never are you going to have to do an entire scene in one take without pretty much without moving and get every, get it perfect from A to Z. And if you care about getting it perfect, um, uh, because you get to have to watch yourself back, um, that can be, it can be daunting. Um, uh, you know, I, you really, I think it's more, I have to spend a lot more time on just, uh, on, um, self-love than <laughs> getting the acting right. Right. Cause you know, it's funny, you know, you, you would think that we're all narcissists in this business, but I mean, I, I feel like I'm low on the narcissism scale for actors and I, I don't enjoy looking at myself over and over and over again. Um, I mean, fortunately, my wife's an incredibly talented actor. I mean, but at, at the same time, it's a it's a dual edged sword because uh, she's incredibly demanding. I mean, I, I, actually, since I've met her, I really feel like I only act for one person. I act for my wife. So if she's like thumbs up or thumbs down, I know if I did it. But when when I'm home auditioning with her, sometimes I'll just I'll start getting in my head. I go, oh, she hates it. She hates it. <laughs> leave me, right? So uh, that that's just you know a nice little journey into the psychology of Reed Diamond. Well, it's funny you say that because, like me, yeah. I'll post a lot of jokes and I'll say to right. my wife, I'll go, Joanne, right. was that funny? She's like, eh. And I'm like, what do you mean it's not funny? I'll tell you it's right. funny. And she's like, eh. I go, I'm putting it up. And she goes, you get any likes? I go, no. She goes, I told you it's not funny. Oh, well, you know, I mean, you know, we, we, we picked good women for, you know, we, we, we were smart guys, right? And you do. You, you want, you, that's the one person's approval that I want more than anything. Now, where are you in New Jersey? I'm uh, 10 minutes outside Philadelphia. Uh, Marlton, New Jersey, right next to Cherry okay. Hill, where I grew up. And, right. Uh, I moved back three years ago, and uh, I just had to get out of L.A. You know, L.A. Yeah. is just, yeah. I mean, and you've been, I, I was there for, I was there for eight, 20 years. I remember, and I told this last time, I remember I waited tables, I waited on you at right. Gordon Beer's restaurant. You were with, like, a few other I people. I remember, yes. And you used to come in there a lot. And I remember I, I was like, there, yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah it's Reed Diamond. And yeah. I knew who you were. I mean, you know, and you were you were very nice. You were very, you know, and the thing is, though, I haven't, I've interviewed a lot of actors, and not right. one has been a jerk. Not one jerk. Yeah. You know, there's, there's I think... You know, the, it's always a squeaky wheel gets the grease. But in my experience, there's there's a lot more. One, that's one of the perks of this job is that you get to be around so many funny, intelligent, cool, creative people. So yeah, there's there's definitely more awesome people than jerks. There's a few jerks, but the jerks make the best stories. That's the problem. You know, you know, it's not. It's like, oh, Reed Diamond. He was nice to me. He was really nice when when he came into Gordon Biersch. You know, he had a couple of Marzins and the sausage, <laughs> and he tipped twenty five percent. But you know, if I'd like if I'd thrown something at you and you're a fucking moron and my sausage is cold and sent it back, I go, you call that a kielbasa? Then, you know, these onion rings are soggy. Then you go, it would be, be, be more interesting at a cocktail party. Now, now, and don't mention a name, 
but okay. have you ran into any real jerks on this set? And you don't don't mention the show, don't mention the name unless yeah. you want to. I I have had the good fortune to work with some some of the best jerks on the planet. And in the old days, it felt like I always think there's a there's there's two ways that people approach work and approach life. And you know, I you know, the one is like the rising tide lifts all boats where hey, we're all in this together. The better I make you look, the better you are. You know, the more supported, the more comfortable you feel as my partner uh, in the scene or castmate or whatever, that we're all going to rise together. And then there are the actors who uh, definitely think, um, hey, I'm going to look better by making you look worse. And and once again, they make for great stories. Uh, I, I have... I have, but it's it's fascinating because it's it's funny thing you know it's very kind of you to say that I was nice, you know when when we didn't know each other and and but I think what I've learned over time in this business is it, who whoever you truly are is going to come out. So if you're an asshole, you can pretend to be a nice guy for a while. You can try it, but it's everyone's going to know. Um, and but I tried. Conversely, I was on a show a long time ago with some really very difficult personalities, and I won't name names, but um, so, I mean, world-class. Perf- the, some of the best scene-stealing, mess-you-up-during-a-take selfish actors on the planet. And I thought, oh, man, I was young. I go, I'm going to try to be an asshole. So I really tried. I thought, okay, I'm going to study what they do because this seems very effective. And I just couldn't pull it off because it's not, it's not in, it has to be part of your nature. You know, I, and I really, I was terrible at it. And, uh, uh, and I think, uh, well, was funny. I, I did a show for a long time that was a very creative and a beautiful show and, and just amazing scripts and, and one of the greatest shows of my life, but it was a very difficult shooting process. And it was a lot of problematic at the time, personalities everywhere. And I remember being told that that was sort of the secret sauce, that that conflict, the real life conflict created on-screen brilliance. And I went off to do the pilot of The Shield. And my buddy, Clark Johnson, who directed, you know, who'd been my, who'd been my partner on Homicide, he played Meldrick, and he's directing The Shield. And I remember I show up to the doing the pilot episode of The Shield and the scripts are really good but I go everyone's really nice and everyone's getting along so well I go ah, this show's gonna fail <laughs> and uh, and then I watch the first and then I, I watch it I go oh oh no everyone can get along and make a great show and since then I mean I've definitely had I've had more amazing experiences than bad and certainly I feel you know someone wiser than me said you know you cut the path you know, the way you're the ship that steers through life and the way the waters come towards you or how you go through them, right? So um, I certainly think that, you know, the more present and, and true to myself that I am, the better I get in return. But um, I always think, you know, I, early on, I worked with some big name actors when I first started and, and some of them were wonderful, but some were horrible where they wouldn't say hello, good morning, you know, just you, you do a four month, you know, four week shoot and, and you, you barely get through a high. But I remember... Uh, I got cast in Good Night and Good Luck that uh, George Clooney was directing. I hadn't met him. And uh, I show up on the CBS Radford lot, and he runs into me on the lot, and he just runs up to me, and he grabs me in a big hug, and he goes, Reed, I'm so glad you're doing this movie. Now, that was all it took. I was like, I would have I <laughs> taken San Juan Hill for him. Anything he wanted from that moment on, and that's a trick. And, I, and so you know, the menchiest people I've worked with since then are, Brad Pitt or George, you know, there's something about their magnanimity, magnanimity uh, that um, brings out the best in other people. And, and they can't manufacture that. They're good people. But uh, uh, I've definitely worked with some world-class jerks. I remember one of my first jobs was a TV show. It was my first, I was one of my first TV gigs. And the lead actor, right before I'm playing sort of a gritty New York City cab driver, I'm playing a New York City cab driver. He goes, you remind me of someone. And I go, uh, uh, okay. He goes, it's, it's going to come to me. So now I'm already in my head during the take. And he goes, yeah, you remind me of someone. You do another take. And then he goes, oh, I know who you remind me of. You remind me of Leslie Howard. Do you know who Leslie Howard yeah. was? 
Right. I go, oh, I remind you of sort of a fey British actor from the 30s, right? So I was like, I was like, you? and then he knew what he was doing. So now I'm like, I'm, I'm like Leslie Howard. I'm trying to be a cab driver. And he thinks I'm like Leslie Howard. Uh, but no, I've had many, many, many more good experiences. Now, I want to ask you, I, I'm thinking, trying to think yes. what the set was like. D.B. Sweeney was on a few weeks ago, and he said Memphis Bell. Um, he yeah. said, you know, he stayed with Carrie Connick. And everyone yeah. else stayed. But what was that like? Because that was an early job in your career. But you look at the cast now. Yeah. All you guys have worked forever. But what was it like having all that testosterone, acting insecurity, and vanity <laughs> in one place? And you're in another country to boot. That, I mean, that's so good. I, I keep following DB onto these shows. I, I just followed him on another one a couple weeks ago. I So... Memphis Bell was my big break. It was my first movie. I'm still in drama school. I was so I was so excited and so intimidated. I um you know, I'm working a bunch all of those actors, uh, Eric Stoltz and DB. They were they were I was huge fans of theirs. And I remember what was so I remember the first week we got to London. I flew over. I flew over with DB and Harry and they were they were very nice to me, but I was super intimidated. I remember for the first week I barely spoke, which used to be my old um method of, of, of starting something my, my terror would sort of take over and then of course he couldn't shut me up after a week but we went to boot camp did he talk to you about our boot camp? No. so okay so at the time so this is 1989 now prior to this the only other movie that had done a boot camp was Platoon so Platoon brought the boys over and they were in the Philippines and they had Dale Dye who was also in the movie he was a former Marine Corps uh, guy he took them through this boot camp but so we, our director, Mike, Michael Caton Jones, was going to build this. He was going to build this real unit. So he's going to throw us in. He's going to throw us into boot camp. And part of the first week we'd had in London, there was he tried to get all of the Hollywood shit out of everybody. So I remember no one could, no one had any say in their wardrobe fitting. They were just sort of assigned their uniform as it would be. But I remember we got sent off to boot camp. So they sent us to this boot camp that had been rigged at this. It was Fulford Manor. It was Lord Fulford. His family had been on the wrong side, I think, of the English Civil War. But it was this dilapidated, yet very grand manor house um, in uh, off in the coast. Where were we? We're near Devon. When we were right next to where the Royal Marines trained and the SAS. And what we had is we had a couple of, we had about three ex-SAS guys and one Royal Marine who took us through boot camp. And uh, I remember we had two uh, sort of, you know, by name, clearly Irish members of the cast. And I remember we were sitting down for our first meeting. They've taken us in this little part of the shtick was that there were 10 of us. They put us in this tiny van and they drove us. I remember driving past Stonehenge with everyone. They drive us to boot camp. We first arrive at the uh, the manor house and the Lord comes out. And he's like, I, I know that some of you Americans have sympathies with the Irish, but we will have none of that here. Right. Cause it was still, those troubles were still going on and he, he had been on that side. So it was, and it was funny. I'm, I'm looking at Tate Donovan and I'm looking at DB Sweeney's eyes. I'm like, I'm going to kill that guy. But so they put us into this boot camp. but I, I think when Oliver Stone did his boot camp with Dale Dye, I think they had a, a real understanding that these actors were going to have to show up on set ready to work in front of a camera. These guys, they, these ex SAS guys, they did not know that. So on the first day, I think you know they, they put us through the obstacle course and we're running and we're swimming across a lake. And I remember DB jumped in and hit his head right there on a rock and it swelled up like a his, he, he looked like Stoltz from Mask his head just <laughs> twice its size right and people were getting hurt left and right and now it was great it was it, it was amazing because it was an it was a perfect place to bond it was incredibly grueling I, I became best friends for life Tate Donovan and Eric Stoltz because we went one night on maneuvers where they broke us into two groups and we had to sort of fight each other and we, the three of us shared a one-man tent. And I remember from then on, that was it. We were friends for life. But it was bananas. And they and, um, I remember we went and shot 50 caliber machine guns, the real machine guns that we were shooting in the show. But um, at one point, I don't know who fomented it, but we were going to do a great escape. And I remember we had plans where we were going to 
were going to steal a boat and sail up the, the coast of England. But um, I just know, I know that one night while we were doing those maneuvers, one of our cast members, who I won't mention, had siphoned off the petrol from several of the, of the SAS guys' vehicles and made Molotov cocktails. <laughs> and luckily, they caught him right before he was going to burn down Fulford Manor. Because um, <laughs> we were like, it's us against them! But... A couple of people got seriously injured. I loved it. I was 21. Yeah, yeah, I was 21 years old. It was everything I wanted. I, I fell in love with those guys. We really did bond. Um, we were. It, it was. It was smart directing. It made a solid group. And uh, but it was one of those experiences. Um, it, it, for a long time, for that for that to be your first movie, to be 21 years old, working with actors that you're, you think are amazing, to have work at Pinewood Studios, which was my dream studio, because that's where all the James Bond movies were made, and all my favorite British movies were shot at Pinewood, so we're at Pinewood, which has just storied history. Um, and the most beautiful studio I've ever worked at. I haven't gotten to work in France or Italy, but compared to um, American studios, it. I remember we used to eat our lunch in this wood-paneled uh, dining room where they'd taken all the panels off of some great ocean liner, and they have bars. Even the crew, where the crew eats in the where I eventually ended up eating because I'd blown all of my per diem at the, at the nice restaurant in the, in the cafe where the crew eats, it's civilized, right? So you could have a pint. Um, cause that's the worst thing when you work at a U.S. studio, you're always at the end of the day, you'd love to hang out with someone, go have a drink, but you have, you have to leave the, the, you have to leave the lot because of obviously I think in America it has to do with liability and insurance and all that, but it was just magical. And they gave us apartments in London and, and we were, we were, we were like the American soldiers from world war two. We were overfed, overpaid and over there, as they said, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it was kid and candy store. And it was, it was, uh, I didn't make one penny on that because I spent every, every penny. I, and DB, who you brought up, tried to convince me because it was the first job I'd ever had uh, with where they gave you per diem, which is where they give you a little bit of spending money per day, which is supposed to be what you need to live off of. And on the first night in, he set up a poker game. And I think his intention was, because I was the young guy, he was, I was going to be the schmuck and he was going to take me. <laughs> and and he, he tried to convince me. I remember him telling me, oh, this is pretend money. It's funny money. It's, it's, this is, you know, you didn't have this yesterday. It doesn't matter. Just bet it. And I go, I remember, because I didn't have much money and I was paying my way through Juilliard at the time. I go, well, it seems like real money. I could spend it. And at some point I got up. I was up. I, 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 had, I, was, I was winning all the pots and... In my, I didn't know all of the etiquette of, of uh, poker, but I go, okay, I'm going to bed now. He's like, you can't leave until, you know, he wanted to win it back. But we stayed friends. But then he lived with Harry, and they had this amazing – I can't. I don't think anyone could have made money on that because they had some insanely amazing uh, 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 townhouse in Chelsea. Um, and I remember having a couple of wild parties at their place. But we still, to this day, we still call each other. When they call me up, they call me Hoog. Because my character was Hugo Steger, so we still refer to ourselves by our character names from that movie. So it was, I think, without question, it, it, it was it was one of the most profound and impactful experiences of my wee career. Now, how did you get the audition in Juilliard? Because I've talked to people who've gone to USC acting school, and they don't they don't want you to audition. You know, it's like you're here to learn acting; you can't audition. How did it come up with Juilliard? And then did you go back to Juilliard? You know, it's a, that's your, you, you know so much. It's a really interesting uh, situation because normally um, when you're at Juilliard or most drama schools, you're not allowed to leave. And I'd already been working as I've been paying through regular college. I, I was I was paying my way. I was earning my living as an actor. But at that time, I was mostly I just I would spend my summers. I would do a couple of commercials. And back in those days, those commercials made some money. You know, there were three, three, maybe at the four networks at the time so they'd run a lot and you could actually make some cash so I put myself through college and now I was putting myself through Juilliard with commercials and I remember I got the audition for uh, for Memphis Bell and it was Juliet Taylor who was Woody Allen's cat and one of the most storied casting directors in New York and I mean I wanted to be part of that movie so I remember saying to them uh, well I did I mean I said when I got cast because the movie started in the summer but I was going to miss about two months of my third year my junior year of, of of juilliard i said hey i get it if you guys if i can't come back and they were quite gracious um and they said absolutely you can come back which was uh, 
really generous of them. And I went back. I probably shouldn't have. In retrospect, I, I, I wish I hadn't. Because I had something. I, I was trying to prove something. I remember I was at the end of the four-month shoot. I finished in London on a Sunday night. I flew back that night. And Monday morning, I went right back to school. And I probably should have taken a two-week vacation because um, it, it had been a very profound experience. And I didn't really get to process it. I certainly was like, <laughs> I taught myself to... Uh, I taught myself how to smoke for the movie and I put myself through this smoking camp for a couple of months before <laughs> I went to England. Cause it was great. Cause it was, it, it, it's, it, I can't, it was so old school. You know, you got the script. I had, I had the part, I think I was cast maybe two months before we even went over there, which was great. Cause nowadays half the time I get a job, they call me up the night before and they're, Hey, can you be in New Orleans? Can you be in Atlanta? Can you be in Vancouver? And I go but to have two months to prepare was amazing but um i thought okay it's i, I didn't smoke at the time and i go well, it's world war ii and everyone smokes so i'm gonna i'm gonna train myself to smoke so i bought a pack of cam camel filterless and and i built myself up but i literally like I, I created a training program like as if i had a smoking personal trainer so on one day i would smoke one cigarette and then i would build up to two and i build up to three and, and so i was building up because I, I wanted to be able to smoke convincingly by the time i got there so by the time i got there I was addicted to cigarettes and uh, and also I realized, oh, my character is the only character who wouldn't smoke. So my character didn't smoke on film, but now I, I'm just chain smoking. And so and, uh, and so you're chain smoking. By the end of the movie, we're partying so hard because we're so young. So I should have taken a little break. But I went back to Juilliard and tried to convince my my um, and this is this is speaks to my uh, ability know self-awareness at the time i then i decided oh i don't want him to think i've gone hollywood or i'm some big shot so i really threw myself into the program in a way that wasn't probably true to who i was because the first two years i was at juilliard i really got a lot i just got so much out of it and but i also was sort of doing an a la carte approach like oh this works for me this doesn't work for me but when i came back i thought oh no I mean, they've, they've been so kind to allow me to leave and come back i'm going to become the world's greatest shakespearean actor so I, I worked on just doing Shakespeare and my voice got bigger and, and I, you know, we've met in person, but I'm a, I'm a loud ass motherfucker. There isn't a theater. I, I, there is not a theater that I've ever been in that I couldn't be heard in. So making my voice bigger, because there's a, at the time at Julia, it was a very cookie cutter approach. So I had a bigger voice and I'd warm up and, and I was getting, I was working on my speech and I, I, I really, I got bad for a while. I, I and it's it's it's. Uh, I made myself a terrible actor for a little while, <laughs> which I think is just part of the journey. And um, and luckily, I was able to sort of put myself back together over 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 the few years afterwards. But uh, they were very kind to let me back to, uh, to answer your question. Now, homicide, which I'm always bummed because you can't find that anywhere. Like, I know why? It's one of those shows. I don't know. I'm sitting there because I'm like it was. So, and I I watched it in and out, but now. I may, I'm not sure if I'm right on this. Did you yep. take Polito's spot? I didn't really, I didn't take anyone's spot. I'm, I, but I mean, it could be seen that way because when I came on, they, the year, they, I came on the year after, the season directly after Polito, Beatty, and Baldwin were gone. Right. So, um, for, reasons that are interesting and uh I'll, I'll allow them well not john but yeah to tell is uh th their time was done and then i was sort of the first new detective to be brought on after that but i didn't really take anyone's spot i mean that's what i meant but i know you were now now what was that like coming on to a show i mean well well it's very interesting because now as time has gone on i've had a much a clearer perspective on how things went down. But um, just to give you a little backstory is uh, I grew up in New York. I studied there. I you know, was doing theater there. I did my first movies there. And then, and um, like you, I, was, I moved to, I flew to Los Angeles. I remember it. January of 1992. And I get off the plane. I just finished my first Broadway show and I'm out there and I get off in January and I can smell the jasmine blooming at night. And, and I'm going, oh, this is amazing. I'm staying. I, I'd only been there once before. Right after we'd finished shooting Memphis Bell, Tate was said to me, hey, you got to come out and see this place. So I took my spring break from Juilliard and I went out there. And this was really what cinched it for me because back east, there's there was sort of a ethos of treating actors 
it was it was hard. It, it's East Coast. It's cold. It's gritty. It's gray. When you go to audition, you're treated like you're like, what are you doing here? Go wait in that room. You're next. We'll call you in when you're ready. There was a lot. There wasn't. It was. It was. I, you know, you could look at it as they're making you tough or making you tougher. But I remember I went to my first audition this spring break in Los in Los Angeles. I'm in my rental car. I drive up to this beautiful place off of Burton Way in Beverly Hills, and I come into the beautiful building. And there's this very lovely receptionist there, and and she looks she looks my name up. She goes, "Reed, we're so glad you're here. Would you like a bottle of water?" And I go, "You're so glad I'm here." And, and and I knew it. She didn't mean it, right? She didn't know me, but I do. So I go, "So what if she's so glad I'm here? She offered me water." And then I go sit over in the in the lovely waiting area. And then I get back after my audition. I get back into my air conditioned car as opposed to walking three long blocks back to the you know the two or three subway in the middle of August. So I I already was in love with Los Angeles, even though it was insincere. I really enjoyed being spoken to, like I was wanted. And uh, and then when I came back in January, and I'll get back to how this got came to homicide. So I come back in January, and oh my gosh. The night jasmine's blooming and i go this is heaven i'm not leaving here right and i remember too i mean new york city was just so impossibly expensive and i get to la and you can have a decent apartment for because i had no money you could buy a six pack for five bucks and and it was just a six pack of budweiser for five bucks you know what you know it's funny i used to go to the uh the thrifty because i lived in burbank it was a thrifty on olive and they used to have a 12 pack of molson for 7.99 Right. Oh, no. And now, see, now, this is the inside. This is the life hack of Los Angeles. The drugstores are always the cheapest place to buy booze. And I don't know why it is, but they undersell everybody. So if you're willing to buy a name brand, and now they'll have, you know, Sierra Nevada or whatever. But, uh, hey, uh, Angelinos, if they're, you know, if we're still shopping in shops, uh, please go to the thrifty. Um, but so, so I get there, and I'm in Los, I'm in Los Angeles for a while. Uh, the the LA riots, 92, they happen. And it's, it's just a crazy time there. And I, I thought, Oh, and then this is interesting given where we are in the world today. And, um, but I felt, Oh, you know, I'm not really doing anything in the world. I want to make the world a better place. So I'm an actor. I'm a stupid actor. What, what, what's the point of, and it felt at the time I had some sort of existential dilemma. And I go, this isn't really a manly pursuit uh, on some level, not a manly pursuit, but I mean, um, where it's, I'm not really doing I'm not giving back per se. How can I make the world safer for old ladies and kids, right? And so I had a bunch of friends who were cops in LA. And uh, and I talked to them about it. And so they took me to the academy. And then I, I went on a ride along in, in Watts. And, and then, long story short, all the cops I met, they all wanted to be actors because it was LA, of course. And, and I realized, oh, you know, I'm not not i'm not a i'm a, i'm an actor it's it's my form of expression but i go i'd love to truthfully and i think that's key now portray one on film blah 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 cut to a few years later I'm, I'm i'm sitting in a vancouver hotel room i'm shooting a pilot and i see the first episode of homicide come on tv and and i was a huge fan of the of the truthful cop genre. I mean, Sidney Lumet's probably my most favorite director, right? You know, and you're just thinking uh, of, of, I mean, when you look at Prince of the City and Serpico, which are very prescient movies right now, um, Dog Day Afternoon, some of my favorite movies. And I'm watching Homicide. I'm going, here are some of the most incredible actors. And they're telling the story in a unique way, which is, you know, those of us who were there at the time, like you, you can remember there was no HBO. There was no basic cable TV shows. This was NBC taking a risk and making a very honest show that wouldn't only be on HBO or Netflix or AMC now. And I go, I want to be on that show. I'm going to be on that show. So a couple of, couple of years later, I get the audition. It was one scene. It was a great scene, interrogation scene for Homicide. And... And I remember going, if they want a blonde, blue-eyed guy for this part, I'm going to get it. Because at the time, it was 1994, 95, every single show, job I went up for, the description in the breakdown said, we want a Johnny Depp type. A Johnny Depp type. And I was like, <laughs> I was the antithesis of a Johnny Depp type. And so I was like, oh, please. But they cast me. Now, I think in retrospect, I think they cast me thinking that they were going to, um, I was going to be the 90210-ish 
eye candy, maybe sex up the show a little bit. Unfortunately, I had an ulterior motive, which was to be in my own Sidney Lumet movie and play this character as realistically as possible. Because <laughs> I remember when I first showed up, they're like, you're a frat boy with a gun. I'm like, I don't know. And um, I don't know if the end. So I fought for no smoochy smoochy, none of that. And I wanted to really because this guy, he really imploded he, he as a character, which was to you know their amazing writers and to their credit, David Simon and Tom Fontana, who I just and so I think at first they thought oh you know we're going to put him in a lot of kissy kissy scenes and he's going to get a girl and he's going to bring some sex appeal and then I just wanted to play the sort of damaged uh, cop who's trying to deal with his own personality and deal with the world and that's what it ended up becoming so we ended up being on the same page but I I think that was not the reason I was invited originally to join the show now you know, you're, you're the blonde, blue eye, you know, the, right. the, the eye candy, the 21 Jump Street with an edge. Um, right. How, in your career, how, because you, you, you've acted for so long, how, how has your career arc gone in your eyes on roles that you get or audition for? Yeah, I mean, it's so, well, that's a great question because what happens is, there's certain, obviously, there's certain ways that people see you when you keep getting typecast and you play those characters over and over again. And then there's certain sort of just periods that, you want, that the, the TV or film goes through where those are the shows that are out there. But I remember right before I got homicide, I was at a management company and the head of the management company brings me into her office. She goes, what's going on? Why aren't you going? I, I sent you this thing. You didn't want to go in. It. And I go, I don't want to play kissy face. I really, I don't want to play the boyfriend anymore. I want to play, um, you know, uh, uh, I want to be a cop. She's like, you're going to do more kissy face. No one's going to give you a gun. And, uh, and then, so I get on homicide. And then after that, I just play cops for a few years. Right. I play cops. And then as I got a little older, I switched to from cops. I switched to playing FBI agents. Right. And then, or lawyers, but it, so you go. So then once you've played something and people are offering you, uh, stuff you're gonna just play a variation on that character so after homicide lots of cops lots of fbi agents and then when you want to change it up you're gonna have to audition you're gonna have to uh, uh, uh you're gonna have to show them that you can do something else even though maybe you you had done it prior you've been that character you played i mean i i started in comedy comedy was my thing and then i just i started getting cast in dramas and i go well this is just easy and then people are like oh you're the drama guy but at first no one thought I was the drama guy. So it's it's interesting how the world perceives you. And, and then there, you have these moments where you go, okay, I really need to fight for something or show you that I'm different. But I remember it was getting pretty boring. That wasn't getting boring, but it was, I was playing a lot of lawyers and a lot of supportive spouses and, and stuff. But as soon as my hair went silver, as soon as the silver came into my hair, I got a brand new uh, burst of casting because suddenly I was the bad guy. And I could play as soon as that little silver went in there. I started playing villains, which was uh, artistically amazing, right? It was career choice wise terrible because all villains get killed. So you have you have no job security whatsoever. So <laughs> you know you're, you're you know you're going to die. Hopefully you make it through the season. You don't always make it through the season. But once the silver went into my hair, um, it it really opened up a whole new world of bad guys or evil white guys and then because in the old days i used to say i'm the guy when i first started when i first came to la i did a lot of tv movies and i i played two variations i either played the the bad guy who you think is the good guy like he's, he's a bad kid or the the guy who thinks the bad guy turns out to have a heart of gold you know at the end tori spelling isn't sure about me because i drive a motorcycle but at the end i'm gonna save her from the murderer <laughs> right and we'll have a we'll have a big smooch but when the silver came in things got interesting again and, and the last 12 years of my career have been probably some of the most interesting and the things that get offered to me and now that there's no shortage of evil white guys in the world i feel like i have some job security um because there's always some horrible senator or uh to, or head of a corporation to play um but it does you don't you go through you go through stages in the last I've been really lucky in the last few years is 
I was doing a lot of network television and uh, I started working with a beautiful new manager and we said, hey, let's let's really fight for some of this cable stuff because that's what I want to do because I feel like there's two roles, there's two char- there's two types of things that you play. We may have talked about this before, but I feel there's two roles you're, you're, you're given. You're either going to play a part where I go, I hope I can make it good or you go, I hope I'm good enough. And it's always, it's always more exciting to, as an artist, to play the, the or an actor, artist, <laughs> look at me, I'm all highfalutin. Um, <laughs> as an actor, it's always interesting to, where the challenge, where you get a little, you know, a little butt sweat, a little butterflies the night before. You're going, I hope I really can fulfill how great this part is and really the, what the writer's intent is. But um, so I, we made a conscious decision to really focus on those parts. In the last few years, I've been really lucky to work on Netflix and AMC and, and multi-layered characters and characters that have um, even the Purge on USA. That was such a it was such a interesting character in the way he was written, and there were levels to explore. And you're working with tremendous actors and directors. And on on the Terror, the second season of the Terror, that was exciting. And I've just finished the 13 Reasons Why, this final season of that. And that's a really nuanced, interesting character. And it's great writing. You're surrounded by just amazing um, actors of all ages. What's it like to be on a show like 13 Reasons Why? Because it really made an impact. You know, it was one of those shows that, you know, you know, when you're a Franklin and Bash, people are going to recognize you for that. Right. Like, you know, the jerky lawyer, The you know. Right. But for, for, you know, what the 13 Reasons is, it's people really have noticed that show. And it's, it's hard hitting. What's that like for an actor to be involved in a project like that? Well, you know, for, before I could tell you that, you just reminded me that my stock character for the last 10 years, because you just brought up Franklin Batch, I played the likable asshole. That's how I go, oh, is there a likable asshole? I'll be the likable asshole. I'm an asshole, but you like me because I'm a likable guy. But yeah, so likable asshole, was that, that, was my, um, that was my stock in trade. But no, 13 Reasons Why, it was, I, I remember when the, the meeting came up and I hadn't seen the show and I just, I now because of streaming and we're so lucky i just popped in the first few episodes and i was blown away by the acting and the writing and so i just want to be part of this show i want to play in this sandbox with these people um i think as far as the impact of the show and the heaviness of it's heavy it's it's a heavy show it was hard for me to read those scripts um traditionally i'll read a script even you know even even the scenes that i'm not in i'll read it many times to get a sense of what's going on i do you know it's not just my line my line bullshit 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 but um but i that's those were those were heavy um and it would be i could really read the whole script once or twice and then i i really it was it was gutting i was even when i watch it i can only do a couple at a time before i've sort of process it and move on but as far as acting on it i've been really lucky i've worked now on that and a couple of these last few shows i've done i work with young actors and there's so many good young actors out there which gives me i'm so profoundly um uh, optimistic about the future of this business because i'm working with these people in their 20s and their late teens who know who they are come ready to work who are just lovely so it's been um as i've become the older actor because one day you wake up you know for years i was i was the kid i was the youngest i was the <laughs> second youngest on memphis belvis after sean and everything i'd be the new kid and then one day you're like hey i'm the old guy you know now and, and then the one people want to hear your stories and they all become much more interesting when you tell them like oh wow this is like me talking to malcolm mcdowell and asking him questions you think i have you know someone will go hey blah, 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 you know they'll tell you a story and then you hear the whole table go silent as you're talking you're like oh oh i've reached that position i guess i have to pick up the check now you mentioned malcolm mcdowell that was in franklin brash and uh you worked with uh ray seahorn who's going on to you know be on Better Call Saul, but I yeah, saw yeah. when I was going on IMDb, you, I didn't know you were on Good Girl Revolt. Right. I was on that, and that's all, those were all Franklin and Bash tie-ins. I mean, with Ray, Ray, she deserves everything that's ever happened to her, because I remember her on Franklin and Bash, just coming into playing, she was playing the district attorney, and the detail of her work, I still, you know, and we're friends, and I've seen her, in fact, I saw her on the set, she was hanging out on the set of Good Girls Revolt, because she was going to direct 
um, I think later in the season if they'd gone to a second season. But she's such a brilliant acting, a brilliant acting teacher, and she's really studied. So I always love her insights on how she – I love watching her work. I love working with her. I'm intimidated. I want to try to be one day as good as she is. Um, and but and then Malcolm McDowell's, you know, it's it's very rare that you get to. If you told the sixteen year old me that I'm going to work with Malcolm McDowell, I never would have believed you. I mean, it was a dream come true. I mean, I was a huge fan, and and he's a he couldn't have been the men- more of a menchy mensch to me. And uh, and he's the most wrong human being that I've ever encountered, and I love that. And he's old school, and he's English, and he only tells you he loves you through deep insults. And uh, I respond to that quite well. I'm, I'm used to that, so I, I, I don't mind that at all. But Good Girls Revolt, that was because Dana Calvo wrote that. And she was – she's part of the Franklin and Bash – Kevin Falls, who created Franklin and Bash, also created this show, Journeyman, uh, which was – one of the greatest experiences of my TV life. And Dana was, uh, was, was a writer on that. And then she was a writer on Franklin Bash. And then she asked me to come play the dad, um, to Anna on, um, on good girls revolt. And that's exciting. It was, it was great to do period pieces, but I, I did permanently damage myself because I did but three period pieces in a row where I had to smoke again. So I'm just smoking <laughs> and there's nothing like smoking on camera because it is the best prop, but in real life you have one cigarette in the last 15, 20 minutes, you may have another one, but here you're, you're having one cigarette every take and it's such a good punctuation for a scene. Uh, so I, I think I gave myself some sort of permanent um, uh, sinus trouble, but uh, it was worth it for that part. Now, why was the Journeyman one of your best experiences in TV? Because it's it's all it's, it brings us round to how we started about talking about working with people and great people. Um, Kem Falls, one of the greatest showrunners. He is the great. He's just he's just the he is the menchiest mensch, and he has a philosophy of no assholes anywhere. And I've never I've never worked on a show where everyone everyone is just the best and happy to be there. And I can't tell you what a different environment that's like, but that was another funny one. That was like the homicide one where I've been waiting for years to do it because my wife and I have been huge fans of Rome that Kevin, where Kevin McKidd was the star. Right. And the first time we'd ever seen Kevin McKidd. And every time we'd watch Rome, Marnie would turn to me and she goes, you guys need to play brothers. You should play two years. We're going, I'm, you know, play Kevin McKidd's brother. And I remember when the call came in to have the meeting with Kevin for uh, journeyman, go hey it's to play kevin mckid's brother go <laughs> and he's a cop i'm getting this one um and and then it were it just it was a perfect experience it was one of those where cast all fell in love we fell in love with the writers and the directors and we just had a bond and we felt it's what you get into this for it's you know i came from the theater you love ensemble you want to you want to create a little group a little tribe and and be in it together i remember we we I think they intentionally set it in San Francisco so we could just go up there and shoot location stuff in San Francisco. And we'd be working our butt off shooting all day. And Alex Graves, our, our director par excellence, would, would while we're shooting, he would already have made the dinner plans to where we're going that night. And we'd have an incredible meal and we'd all drink hard and eat well and then still be up at 4 o'clock in the morning ready to go. And um, that was one of those where if, if that show had gone for seven years, it would have been a dream come true. You know, unfortunately it went the first 13 episode and luckily we, the first 13 order and luckily that the writer strike happened and because uh, Kevin is so organized, such a great writer. He had all the scripts written. So we were able to finish our order, which a lot of shows didn't get to do, but I'll never forget the last night we'd, we'd taken a trailer and we'd filled one half of it. We turned it into a bar and we're filming our last scenes. Cause we know this is probably the last night. We kind of know that this may be, this is probably the end. So we'd, we'd, we'd shoot a scene. Then we'd go into the room, we'd cry and drink and hug each other, tell each other how much we loved each other. And we've all stayed really great friends since then. Um, so that's, that's why it's special. That's why journeyman was, cause it was, I, I love that character. I, I love those people. And, and those are because that's why I got into TV. I mean, TV's really changed since I'd made a choice to transition from because when I first came out to Los Angeles, doing TV was really frowned upon because I thought, oh, I'm going to only do theater and have a film career. And, uh, you know, and, and at some point I started seeing, oh, there's great TV. I'm going to do TV. And then TV became what it is now, where it's it, it's uh, it's the go to spot. Um, but when I first started, it was still on mostly network television. So you're doing 22 episodes a year. So that's nine months out of your year. You can, you're, 
you're with a family. It's, 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 it's having a proper job. And now that's really changed with the, the cable model where you're doing 10 episode seasons and then you may have a year off in between. But it's still, that's the goal is to have a place that you love showing up every day where you feel safe enough to do creative work and uh, really shine and help other people shine. Now you were on Twenty Four, and then you were on Designated yeah. Survivor. Both yeah. Cooper Sutherland was was that the reason you were on him, or was there a connection, or or had you known each other before you did Twenty Four? Am I the Kiefer Whisperer? Yeah. No, it was like <laughs> no. Well, Kiefer and I have a long history as well. He and I were both apprentices uh, at Williamstown Theater Festival up in Massachusetts, which is this well-known summer stock theater and apprentice means you basically pay a certain amount of money for them to put you up and you do all the work you're you're the, you're there you're, you're you build all the sets and you tear them all down and, and it was great but we were we were apprentices together so we kind of knew each other then and the next time i saw him i remember seeing him was at one of those beautiful wood paneled bars at pinewood he was shooting a movie there and He's out there at lunchtime, just swirling a little brown liquor in a, in a nice little glass. And, and then the next time I saw him was 24. Um, I, I've been lucky enough to work with Kiefer uh, on 24 and Designated, uh, which I, we shot up here at Designated, we shot up here in Toronto. Because um, uh, I, I, he's the smartest. and he's, he's, yeah, he's probably the smartest actor I've ever worked with. That guy is... And he suffers no fools, so it's a great set to be on. He keeps it nice and crispy. Everyone needs to bring their A game because he he demands a lot from everyone around him, which can be can be daunting. But uh, I I love it. I like I like when things get crispy on set. I like when uh, everyone feels a little, you know, feels compelled to bring their A game. Um, but uh, yeah, no twenty and twenty four was one of those amazing uh, experiences where. Um, I always thought that these shows were planned out. I figured they had all 24 hours and they knew what they were going to do. You got 24 hours, you know what each hour contains, but it was one of those where I, they'd run out, they played so many times. I've come on a show where it's going to be one episode and then I end up staying for two or three seasons. Right. And that's the gift also of, of TV. If sometimes they don't have a plan necessarily, or they have a plan and they've, they've come to, it's come to fruition earlier than they thought. So on that 24, I wanted to be on that show for years and their offices were out in Chatsworth and you know where Chatsworth yeah. is, but Chatsworth is, it's like, it's the farthest Northwest corner of LA. And the right? porn, and the porn out. capital. And it, well, I was going to say it's the porn <laughs> capital. It's also where Roy Rogers had his studio in his house. He had all those little rocks out there and you can still, some people, I remember I had a friend who worked on my computer, lived out in one of those neighborhoods at Roy Rogers where his, he's, they have like the little mining cart that he's left there from his shooting days. <laughs> but you'd have to make the schlep out to, to loot him to, to, um, out to Chessworth to meet with those guys. And I was like, oh man, I don't want to do this anymore. And then one day they called up and like, Hey, do you want to come on 24? And you're going to play vice, you know, president Logan's assistant. And, um, Gregory Itzen and I loved him and, and we just had uh, so that was great I had I was playing this character and we were trying to figure out if I'm a bad guy or a good guy and then suddenly they played out their 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 first idea so suddenly I became the big bad guy which is always it's these gifts I mean it's funny you're talking about working with people and how and choices you make and shows you're on I certainly have found I've gotten the most in my career out of saying yes because you never know what's going to happen you know, sometimes you say yes to something and you go, ah, it, did, it was okay. I did my best. It didn't turn out great. But oftentimes you say yes. And it's so far exceeds what you thought your experience was going to be. You know, I mean, I, when I met Joss Whedon for Dollhouse, I think that character was just in the pilot. And the first episode, Lawrence Dominic, the head of security, and they call me up. They go, hey, do you want to just do this one scene part in the pilot? And I go, yeah, hell yeah. I want to work with Joss so bad. I'm, I'm a huge fan. And then we just hit it off and we found something in that moment. And I think at the end, we had, we just finished shooting the scene. It was a three-hour scene. And he'd already taken me on a whole tour of the set and we bonded. And then um, they said to me, okay, we'll see you when we come back. And that wasn't the plan. And then I was there for, for the rest of that season and then came back and I was part of the stable and got to be in Much Ado. And then I, you know, because of that show, Marissa and Jed, who created um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. with with Joss, they invite me to come be a big bad guy on Aces of Shield. So, saying yes and and not being a dick, I guess, um, and being moderately talented is 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 a good secret for you know for an interesting life. You know, and that's why that's my favorite thing about it is I could have made plans, 
and I could have set goals. And I'm sure at times I did, but it seems silly because then you sort of miss whatever pops up in front of you. And it's an interesting career, right? Um, I'm 52 years old and um, I've never stopped working. I've, I've, I've always earned a living as an actor, but I have years that are going great. And I have years like, hope we make it, you know, better get a show soon. And, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. How do you, how do you deal with that uh, in your mind, knowing that you've constantly worked, but then you have to worry sometimes about getting a job. Like it's like, you know, I mean, it's, if some, if an accountant works for years and then they, get fired from their job or the job ends, it goes to job as an accountant. And it's an interview process. It's it's auditioning, but it's something that they know, unless they screw up, they're going to be at that job for a while. How's as an actor, when you go in, when you're not working, do you get down on yourself? Do you try extra hard to nail that audition? You're, you're so, you're so good. These are really insightful questions. And you hit it directly. That's the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge that you have as an actor is getting out of your own fucking way and getting out of your head because yeah if you you know how it is it's like in anything if you want it you're not getting it you have to have a different way of approaching you have to go and do the work and it's about it's always about keeping your ego in check and and having a healthy amount of confidence but not being identified with success or trying because i mean the thing is I can't control, you can't control, as I tell young actors, I tell smart people, you know, uh, contemporary actors, younger actors, anyone I know, my wife, and try to tell myself every once in a while, they're going to cast the right person, you know, you're going to, you know, I can't change, I can't be more of a Johnny Depp type, or I can't be older, heavier, lighter, or shorter, taller, I can't change whoever I am. Um, it has to be the right alchemy. And that I think that's the only thing that I don't love about not going into the room is some of that alchemy gets lost. You can't sort of feel that transference of energy between two people. And sort of, they sort of get your essence. You know, they're just seeing this tape of you playing the character. But it's, um, it's the business. Yeah, I remember going to an audition probably while I, right after I finished Homicide. And I look in the waiting room not reading for the same part as I am but in that waiting room I see Charles Durning and John Polito they're fucking Charles Durning and John Polito you know they're they've are they're established they they are who they are and I almost I went I actually I, I did I said to the casting I, I go why are they here reading why are you making these guys read you, they, they, and then and and but then I realized they were happy I looked at their faces and I'd worked with Charles and and um I hadn't met John yet but they were happy to be there they got it that's what it's about. You know, um, a much smarter person uh, than I, who, whose job was to keep my head straight, um, he always said, he goes, your, your, your Greek myth is Sisyphus, right? Every day, you, you, know, you got to push the rock up to the top of the hill. No matter how far you get it up the mountain, it's going to roll back down again. And you're going to have to roll it back up. And that's the nature of this. And uh, it's certainly, it's exciting gives you certain muscles and i think once you've pushed the rock back up enough times you know you'll push it back up yes of course i i I would be lying to you if i don't wake up every once in a while and i go "Eh, maybe it's over maybe it's over you know i have to come up with something else to do but it isn't and uh that's the challenge it's uh and there's always something new and uh but uh, I have less sleepless nights than I used to. I, I know there will always be something to do. And, and, and as I always, I always talk to younger actors now, I say the most important thing you can do, which I'm try- you know, I've done as well, but uh, certainly the business has changed dramatically. I mean, when I first got in this business, you needed a camera with film to shoot something, right? And now everyone's got a camera with, that's infinitely more flexible on their phone. So I'm always saying to people, write, make your own stuff. Because... Um, you know, I'm, I'm a gun for hire, you know, I'm, I'm here to do your show, but you could tell the people how you want to be seen. So if you don't want to be doing kissy face, like I said, don't write yourself, write yourself a part where you're not being doing kissy face and show us and you can put it out. Um, that's what's exciting 
about the world right now is there's so many talented people out there and there's it's so much more egalitarian and democratic and how you can get your product out there so i certainly try to take my own medicine i write and i'm put things together and and but i'm lucky enough that people the phone will ring and people will call and and also i gotta just kick myself in the ass and put together a good audition and win that part which is exciting you know because certainly the business has changed a lot and you enter different age groups and there might be less or more work you just never know uh based on the whims and how what the public is watching and what they're into and uh it's certainly there's nothing worse than thinking you're owed something or getting bitter or thinking, you know, you have to prove it. And so that's exciting. And in these strange times, I remember I felt this in the, in the economic downturn in 2007 when people, as you said, you've been accountants their whole lives and now they're, they're out of work and they're looking for work. I gotta, I, I gotta look for work all the time. And, uh, and I have to pick myself back up. So I think about, there's, you know, there's so many sp- I follow so many sports figures and I think about them, you know, the, the, the psychology of the game, you know, you've just lost a game. You got to go win the next one or, and, or you, David Goggins, you, you know, his book, you know, you follow someone who's like, you just got to pick yourself up because someone was saying to me, a writer, I was at Thanksgiving. She was like, Oh, you know, they, they rejected my script. And I'm just, I don't know. I'm like, I go, do you know how many times I've been kicked in the dick this week and I have to still get back up and do it? It's like, yeah, you got kicked in the dick. It's okay. Just let's get back up. Let's do it, man. Because no one cares. You know, my, you know, my kid doesn't, my kid's not going to eat. If I, if I, if I'm like, Oh, you know, I, I don't have time for the pity party. You kind of got to learn the lesson and move on and also know what's in your control. And that's, I think that's the most challenge. That's one of the most challenging things as an actor, when you're auditioning and you, What's all that's in your control is you, who you are as a person and how you do your work. You can't, you can't be more right for something. You can't make yourself more right. You can't convince someone that you're right. When, when it's right and when the music is there, you're the right guy. And so you just got to tr- bring your A game. And uh, I mean, it's good philosophy for life, right? You just want to you try to show up every day and, and do your best. And yeah, some days, some days, you know, you just don't feel it some days. But you got to now. Now, how do you think the industry is going to change with coronavirus? How do you think? I mean, as you know, no one knows when they're going to get back. I've talked to someone who said, well, we can't do live theater because you can't have a love scene. We can't do this. How do you think it's going to change? And then how do you plan to try to acclimate to that? Because once again, your life's going to be in a little bit of chaos. Yeah, I mean, these, you know, we're living through extraordinary times. Um <laughs> We're living, and things are changing, but things, look, there's going to become a point where we can test for COVID, right? So if we're talking about that. There's going to become a moment where we'll know, or we'll know, we're going to know if antibodies work. I mean, already they've got the proposals about how we can go back on set, and um, and people will be able to meet that, because no one, no, we, I mean, certainly no one was in the mood you know, it was such a shock. That was such a shock. And then what we've gone through the last few weeks has been so we're in we're in very profound changing times. Uh, but no, I still no one wants to watch your Zoom TV show. Right. It's not you know, it's not it's not that's not going to be we're not going to be all shooting stuff remotely from our house. We'll go back to the theater. We're going to figure it out because we're not going to watch videotapes in the theater. We'll figure out either how to social distance or at a certain point you'll know. Um, but the scary part for everyone um, you know, as we just said, I'm thinking about it. if you're an usher in a theater, if you run a theater, you know, if, if, if you're if you're selling concessions, I mean, we need to figure out a way to get back there sooner rather than later. Um, I don't have the answer. I wish I did. I mean, certain, I mean, things that, you know, right now auditioning is what it's been. Right. So I'm, you're putting yourself on tape so I can I can audition for stuff that maybe is going to happen. And they're talking about. I mean, some of the shows that I'm looking at, they're talking about starting up in December, right? Now, um, I'll just say, does that make it harder for you when you sit there and you audition for a show that might start in December? Does that make it a little harder to audition for the fact that it might not come to fruition? It's like a kid who's always hitting a heavy bag, hitting a heavy bag, yeah. and he thinks one day he might get in the ring, but all of a sudden he never does. 
you've had a career, so you know when it gets up and running, you will work. I mean, because, you know, you've worked for your whole life. But is that is it hard when you sit there and you have to get prepare yourself mentally for a role, put it on your audition tape, you know, have tape, and then sit there and go, okay, I'm going to send this. And even if I get the part, I might not ever actually get the part. Right, it may not happen, but that's it. You know, I mean, um, I'm certainly, I'm well-versed in disappointment, right? Because it's just, you know, you, every actor, it, 99% of the jobs, you know, unless you've been fortunate enough to start off really young and, and just you just go from offer to offer, for the most of us, for the working actors, it's, you're, you're, you, you, you get less jobs than you don't, right? That's part of, that's, that's the, that's the ratio. That's, that's, that is the, uh, that's the algorithm, right? That's the way it goes. That's the equation. So, yes, if, if I really wanted to go down that road and go, oh, this looks really daunting, but you have to, you kind of have to throw your hat over the wall and hope for the best. Because I mean, the other thing I, if, I could go, well, gosh, um, major stars aren't working right now because there's no show. They're probably going to want my job, right? There's going to be, it's going to be, it's certainly, as it always is, it's a buyer's market. Um, and I think that inspires one to come up with other revenue streams, figure out other ways to be creative and to get it out there. But um, I, I may be deluded, but I'm super hope. I'm 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 not worried. I have great faith that everything will not get back to normal. It'll get it will go to something new, right? I mean, we're going through profound changes, right, in the world right now, and so many of them are incredibly positive. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna find something new at the end of this. Um, yeah, I'm eating in, right? <laughs> Right. But we're all, but we're all eating it. Uh, but uh, it's, it, I mean, already you know you saw like Chappelle put together those shows, and he's figured out a way to do concerts with socially distancing. We're smart. We'll figure things out. Um, uh, and then, I mean, the people right now you're worried about are you know people who are compromised and won't be able to go to the theater in right now. But I mean, the theater's coming back. We've been through pandemics before been through um tough times before uh and i i trust that we'll come out of this stronger but yeah <laughs> it's crazy out there it's crazy anyway it's crazy. i want to thank you for taking the time to talk to oh me. my uh, god it's always fun it's... to talk to you it's been six years and it's so funny i i go through this like i said when i talked to paul ben victor two weeks ago it was right. like five years and right. all of a sudden and then a bruzo seven years and it's like yeah. holy shit it was that long and i go Oh my God, it was because I look at it like this. I recorded in a studio. You're in the yeah. studio. And then I had to record at my place in LA for a little bit. Then I moved back here three years ago. So all right. of a sudden I go, holy crap. And then, of course, you guys have all worked and you've gotten different parts and you've gone on. So it's just one of those things, you know, it's just cool. So I want to thank you for uh, coming on. It's always a pleasure. I love talking to you. Now, now, do you still tweet? I know, are you still on Twitter? I've taken a bit of a Twitter break, uh, just because it's a uh, little bananas out there right now. But it was just—I uh, don't think anyone needs to hear from me right now. I don't think I have anything for the conversation at the moment. I'm waiting. I'm trying to learn a little more so I can participate in a slightly more constructive way. Good. Well, can people go? But just go on IMDb and look up. Oh uh, yeah, Reed I'm, I'm on. I am on. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram at Reed Diamond Presents, and uh, it's, uh, I'm going to post some pretty pictures soon, and I'll, I'll be back on Twitter, you know, where I just, uh, I thought there was, I need to leave the space available for people who have a lot to say. That's good, well, so people, follow Reed, check out Reed, follow me on Twitter, I'm at Cooper Talk, follow me on Instagram, at Cooper Talk 1, uh, my website, coopertalk.net, you can find 800 episodes up there, uh, also, email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net, and I'll get back to you. So, people, have a great day. Be safe. I'm Steve Cooper. I was only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Awesome.